All right, so we're um, in chapter 27. We're going to spend a little time on these last two paragraphs, and then we're going to jump into baptism, which is, I know, something everybody's chomping at the bit for. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather in this way and reflect on this confession of faith. We know, Lord, that the men who labored to present it to us uh, were men who were trying to summarize Scripture in such a way so as to uh, help us and uh, encourage us in the faith. We pray that will happen today as we reflect on it. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're looking at the fourth paragraph here under sacraments, and we're told there be only two sacraments. That's an old-fashioned way of saying things, isn't it? There be. There be only two sacraments uh, ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That's uh, a statement that is impossible to refute because they are narrowing, uh, you know, the way of uh, defining a sacrament to what has been explicitly established by Christ himself. And that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. We talked a little bit about that last clause last week, meaning someone who's been set apart, laying out of hands by elders, uh, and ordained, given uh, a task in terms of administering the word and sacrament. So this isn't something that Uncle Bob can do uh, just because he loves Jesus or the whole lot, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, that means that we have to attend to this and think about it. Um, I guess the thing to consider at this point is um, apostolic succession. Are you familiar with, with the doctrine of apostolic succession? It's the uh, conviction that there is an unbroken chain uh, from Christ to the present, uh, particularly with regard to the authority that was uh, given to the apostles, uh, and that chain is uh, to you know present, you know, sort of the end of the chain. We have it here. Now, everybody who is a Christian agrees with that, insofar as I've stated it. It comes down to who. You know, is where the debate is. So unless you can document it, or at least pretend you can, <laughs> then it's, you can't say it that way. So for example, when we talk about Roman Catholic bishops or Orthodox bishops, that's what they're saying. They're saying these are men who have been set apart. It's been handed down. In other words, we can chase the, trace the chain from the, the apostles to this particular fellow here. Uh, and that's why uh, he has the authority that he has, even if he may be a jerk, even maybe he gets off track sometimes, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think I mentioned to you that I'm kind of privy to some sort of uh, internal debates amongst pretty scholarly Roman Catholics, and they're completely appalled at this pope. I mean, they really don't know what to do with him. Um, they're on the one hand, in fact, uh, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of bishops that have been disciplined by the Vatican recently, Touchstone Magazine is thinking of inviting them to talk <laughs> at our next conference. <laughs> They're that mad uh, at, at the Pope. Uh, and you, you read some of his stuff and say, yeah, I think if I were Roman Catholic, I'd be, but even I'm disturbed and I'm an outsider. 
Um, but that's the thing. So how do we understand uh, this unbroken chain within the Reformed faith? Any thoughts? Is it just like we don't believe it at all? Uh, apostolic succession, or do we have a different understanding? Well, yeah, the, the apostles uh, all have seen the resurrected Jesus. Yep. And there's your, there's your apostolic. Yeah, and you, you can't jump over that, then, yep. then don't even bother. Yeah, so it has a, you get people call themselves apostles today. Well, yeah, yeah. And even people who believe in apostolic succession don't think that. <laughs> it's a legitimate thing to call yourself an apostle today. You can say maybe I've got like an ministry that sort of resembles the apostle Paul or something like that. But yeah, you can't, you can't. So I guess what I'm thinking about is we as Reformed people believe in apostolic succession. We just don't understand it in the same way. So in other words, laying out of hands, elders. Now if we could go back in time and actually trace it, the understanding is, is we could document it. You see what I'm getting at? So like, you know, all the ruling elders, if we were able to, sort of like when you think about genealogy. You know, like can say, you know, it's a fascinating thing when you learn about your ancestors, you know, through DNA analysis. Like, I, I think I mentioned to you that I didn't realize, I had no clue, I was 56% Swiss. I'm 56% Swiss German. I was like, what? You know, family names are McCullough and Wiley. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get that? Those are Scots-Irish names, by the way. So I'm like, I always just assumed I was like 99% Scots-Irish. And it turns out I'm only like 48% Scots-Irish. And what I, what I discovered is that there were people who changed their names. And can you imagine why they did it and when they did it? <laughs> like World War I, World War II, it's kind of awkward to have a name like Moz or Hitler. <laughs> So I think I'm going to change my name, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what happened. So, uh, you know, even, even when you have your name, you're not able to, like, say, I'm, I know for sure that this is. That's another thing. Have you ever seen these, like, uh, reveals on, like, YouTube videos or people who discover, you know, it's awfully fun when you see, like, African-Americans or people who think of themselves as, like, 100% black and they discover, no, I'm French, German. <laughs> got some, some Irish in me. In fact, I'm 52% white. <laughs> and there's like, it's like a real crisis. And like, wow, I didn't know that. But it, anyway, so if we think about in terms of apostolic succession, you know, if we were able to look at it, we would be able to say, okay, there were all these elders that go all the way back to the first century. Yep, Steve. Although I don't entirely uh, identify as Swiss, um, the, 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 uh, the Roman Catholic Church, they do have, uh, what we, and, and in other, some, some denominations, the idea of tactile transmission. You mentioned, you mentioned laying on of the hands. Yep. And so that's what you're referring to. So if we could look at it, yep. is that what you mean? And that's the way we do it. There is a laying on of hands. Right. Yep. But what they're saying is that succession is... Uh, well, I, I noted that, I think, before you... From the apostolic times... Well, that's what that, yeah, it's not broken, but it's also documented. So it's documented and unbroken, but it's unbroken for us too. We can't document it though. In other words, there's, there's you know, may, maybe you've come across some guy that came, I said, I ordained myself. I'm, you know, Elder Bob. Yeah, right. But that's, is that the way it's supposed to work? So yeah, I mean, there are possible 
you know, gaps and different things. But another thing to remember is that when you have this happen, this often, at least in a reform setting, there are many elders who are present. So I don't, I'm, gonna, I'm not trying to overstate state the matter, and I'm not trying to give too much credence to the claims of the Roman Catholic Church because there are kind of things within the records that people are unsure about and say, I'm not sure that's right. It's kind of like when you go back and you discover, again, getting back to your own genealogy. Like I, when you're on like Ancestry.com or something like that, you get these notices. We found something, boom, and then you go back and you look and you examine it. But can you really know for sure? No, you can't really know for sure. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm descended from Jenny Wiley. Jenny Wiley is a famous pioneer woman uh, in Kentucky. There's actually a park named for her. But can I, with absolute you know, uh, confidence say, I am definitely descended from Jenny Wiley, even though I've got all the, the paperwork. You know, there's, there's, a, there's at least a reasonable doubt that, that maybe something happened or, I mean, for goodness sake, you know, Jenny Wiley uh, lived in Kentucky before there was a town hall. In other words, her first group of children were all slaughtered by Indians. So this, we're talking about the frontier, like I think it's six or seven kids, including the, the infant that she had after the, she was abducted by the Indians. Then she had another bunch, and I'm descended obviously from the other bunch. <laughs> and I can tell you, it's Thomas, her, her, one of her sons named Thomas. I said, that's what, but, can I, but it, can I say that with full confidence? They didn't even have a town hall to file the paperwork. You know, it's kind of like you're trying to reconstruct some things after the fact. Like, you know, you get, you know, a little later, you say, well, that was kind of important. We probably should document that. What, who was that guy's name? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, I, like I, I said, I'm try not trying to overstate it, but when it comes to, you know, this matter of uh, how do we recognize someone as being, uh, as it's stated here, uh, lawfully ordained lawfully ordained. Yep, David. So with regards to, say, like Apollos... Um, we don't know anything about Apollos. We just got a name. <laughs> and we know he was a really sharp guy. But do we know that there was laying out of hands? We can't document it. Right. As in, but as of today, when we say lawfully ordained, um, how do we go about doing that. Well, now we do really good record keeping. I can tell you exactly the place and who was there and who laid hands on me and all that kind of stuff. Well, I guess I meant in the fact, like, say there is a, a present Apollos who's not even part of a denomination. He actually, it's, it's clear in this fictional example that he brings a lot of people to Christ. These are really great fruits. Um, other churches, maybe that are not reformed, recognize this particular person. There's offspring that are baptized. They come into the church. What, what, then? What do you do then to uh, facilitate or, or say this is a proper baptism and all? We do the best we can. <laughs> we just don't know everything. We do the best we can, and that's kind of just how, how it has to be. We do the best we can. Um, you know, in the end, the Lord sorts it all out. Uh, and so forth, but uh, our intention is, well, for example, uh, we in the in Presbyterian world in particular spend a lot of time examining the minutes. So I don't know if you're familiar with how things work, but 
we have to keep records of everything that we do in session. And then those just don't go in a, in a folder, in a file cabinet, they get sent. And then they're reviewed. And sometimes we get stuff back saying, you need to change this, you need to do this, this wasn't done correctly, that kind of thing. And we gotta do our homework and that kind of thing. So there's a process by which the records, at least in the Reformed Presbyterian world, it's very uh, kind of type A, you know. Just, you know, if you just say, our heart was in the right place, <laughs> they say, well, I don't care. <laughs> Where's the paperwork? <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Go down a fictional path with me, if you will. Say there's a man who, he's not affiliated with any church, never has been, rants and raves against the church and its offices, says he's ordained, marries a couple, how, are they are they are they married by law? Are they is it all, all is all that matters is that they're married in the eyes of God? What what do you do? Well, there are different categories for this. There's common law marriage, you know, which is a legal category, which is after a period of time the state recognizes that you, for all intents and purposes, are married. But then there's the civil magistrate who does marry people. And within the Reformed world, we recognize that as a legitimate marriage. Then you got the Roman Catholics who say, no, that's not enough. We need to marry you again. And they do. <laughs> yeah. well, and does the church um, see like a common law marriage? That would not be a marriage. In what church? Like the church common law, would you would ask them to get married? Yeah, I mean, for legal reasons, the state is going to treat it as though it's a marriage we would like to have it formalized. Yeah, so if we had a, a couple who were unmarried but came to Christ or maybe just are coming to church and you know, we, say, we really need to make this a, a legally you know, binding thing. Now, common law is, is supposed to be legally binding, but it's, more it's based on sort of common law in general, this idea that traditions and patterns and things like this need to have some kind of state um, recognition. Does this church recognize then people married by the state? Like, oh, unless yeah. you're not married by ordained minister, would that? Yeah. yeah we, so this is, by the way, the thing that uh, led to kind of a break in the friendship between C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Just kind of a little background information. Yep, Brittany. What if someone who's not ordained marries his best buddy, is that viewed as a common law marriage by the church, or is that viewed as a legitimate marriage by the church? Well, it kind of gets to... Not, not ordained, not ordained by the church, and not lawfully uh, minister performing marriages. Just, hey, yeah, this is not... come and marry me. Yeah, I, I think that if we were to be aware of that, which we often aren't, it's not like people walk into church and say, hey, by the way, <laughs> it was Uncle Bob, <laughs> that kind of thing. But if we were to become aware of it, we'd, we'd at that point talk and say, we really, you know, we believe that this needs to be something that is done by a recognized minister of the state, minister of the church. So the church itself would not consider, would consider that just a common law relationship because Uncle Bob did the ceremony? I think so, but I mean, one of the things about our, our uh, polity is I don't speak ex cathedra, so uh, it's not pastor Chris's opinion that really carries the day, <laughs> we'd have to go into session and 
debate it and look at the stuff and uh, come to a decision. Sure, sure. This is one of the things that surprises Baptists because this is a fun thing, fun thing about Baptists. Baptists like super against, you know, the papacy, but every local, local church seems to run like it. <laughs> Have you noticed this? You know, it's like the pastor is like the final word and everything, you know, it's like that. Anyway. Yeah. A little fun example, I guess, would be if you're uh, just discussing whether common law marriage is, is, is as legit as the civil magistrate marrying or a pastor. Uh, common law seems to be indicating that a man is taking a woman and they are basically vowing without vowing in front of people. And I wondered if you're on an island, you know, there's a hundred people and there's only two left and they decide to come together in the eyes of God that could conceivably at that time be a mess. This is like, you know, the old uh, lifeboat illustration where you say, who do you throw out first? Okay, well, we're not there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm just having fun. Sorry, have to be together at least seven years? I think that's the way it works. I think that's the way it works. There are a lot of things that um, practice is kind of the determining fact. Like when you think adverse possession. Are you familiar with adverse possession? You can lay claim to somebody else's property by using it. Yeah. So in other words, like if you if you like, uh, you know, put your fence over the corner of somebody else's property, and that party does never, I mean, doesn't object and 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 you know take you to the authorities, and a period of time, and I, I'm not sure which what it is here, but it's a, there's a period of time that's theirs. Possession is what three. Something of the law, something like that. So that's what 15, years California. 15 years of California, we have an authoritative word. <laughs> but the point is, is that, is that uh, this is a way for the state to handle things because, uh, you know, we live in an imperfect world. And we kind of have to work with what we, what's the situ on the situation on the ground. And, and so common law marriage originally, if I understand it correctly, is intended to, to, to protect the interests of the woman. So when the homeless move into a place and they stay there and the owner doesn't know it, then they claim that it's theirs. Well, the key is, is, yeah, well, that's an attempt to do it. But again, you have to do it for a long time, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's what squatting sometimes is up to. So that's why, you know, if you've got some property, you better learn your boundaries and, and enforce them, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, David. The, uh, with what we're discussing, what, what do you do in uh, areas of the world where there's been war? Maybe all the elders and deacons were killed. Let me just say again, you do the best you can. <laughs> you, just, you just do the best you can. You know, in other words, again, it's the lifeboat illustration. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, I mean, these are extreme circumstances that we're dealing with here. You know, let's just assume that most of the time, 99.99% of the time, things are going to work just fine. We don't make a rule based on exceptions. If you start making rules based on exceptions, then you've got no rules. Yeah. So how, how does that work? Like Gladys Allward, the missionary to China, went into places that men weren't allowed because she was, she was the inspector for foot binding. And she made inroads into those areas and then had preached the gospel. Do the best you can. <laughs> but I'm just like, is that okay? Like, is that? Really you do the best you can. I mean, this is an extreme circumstance. 
You know, and we have uh, allusions to that, Un, you know, ordinarily, you know, for example, you'll hear those terms. And what, what, what's trying to be uh, reinforced is the legitimacy of institutions. Because if you start making um, exceptions the rule, you end up with no institutions after a while. I mean, no laws, no, you know, churches, no marriages, you know, everything becomes like, well, it's whatever you, in, you want. Which is kind of what it's become today. It's like, it's all about you, baby. It's all about what you think. So we understand that we can't, we can't know as much as we like to know. We can't enforce with the kind of, kind of confidence certain things that we'd like to be able to hold people accountable to. But we try the best we can. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> Let's move on to some other stuff here. Um, now, the next statement is an important one. This, uh, oh, they're all important, but the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard to the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance. This is, that's an interesting term. That's an Aristotelian uh, term. Uh, the same with those of the new. So when you say substance, it's substantially the same thing. Substantially the same thing is what you're saying. It's substantially the same thing. So what were those Old Testament sacraments? If we're talking, if we're saying baptism and the Lord's Supper. Circumcision. Circumcision, that's the easy one. That's baptism. What about the Lord's Supper? Passover. Passover, right. So in both of those, uh, we as Christians say that they were always pointing to Christ. Maybe the people who were administering them didn't understand that. But they were always pointing to Christ. Very important, because if we're, it's not like we have two ways of salvation. It's not like, you know, people in the Old Testament were saved because of their observance of the law, but now that Jesus has come, you know, we're saved through his grace. What does that mean? That means that you still have two ways of salvation to this day if you, if you kind of carry it forward. No. No, it was always salvation by grace. It was just that people didn't have the revelation that we enjoy now of Christ. The first advent of Christ is the revelation. So everything, uh, as we look at the Old Testament, we read through the lens of Christ. And Jesus did this. So this is not like some clever new thing that apostles dreamed up. Read about the road to Emmaus, right? What does Jesus do with these guys who are like beside themselves with grief and despairing? Right? They're like, we thought he was the Messiah. And then he says, you numbskulls. Actually, it's morons. You morons. That's the, that's the Greek word. It means fool. <laughs> you morons. Don't you know that it's, uh, you know, then he opens the scriptures from, you know, the, the law and the prophets saying, these were always about me. These were always about me. And so then the apostles are like, well, he's the one who said it was always about him. It's not us. So now, how do we understand that? How do we, how do we connect the two? So that's why we refer to the church in the Old Testament. So I'm trying to dispel all of this dispensationalism that you've been getting kind of secondhand <laughs> your whole life. And you didn't realize it was dispensation. By the way, dispensationalism got its start in the early 19th century. Yes? Um, in that vein uh, with dispensational and Baptist, 
um, within their break between circumcision and baptism. Is there also a break in teaching of Passover being replaced by the Lord's Supper? There's nothing explicit, but it's implicit. Why would we celebrate the Passover? Yeah, I just never really heard that growing up, even though it was practiced regularly. It still wasn't ever, the connection wasn't made, so I felt like a genius when I was like, oh! <laughs> well, you are! <laughs> That's great. But yeah, that, that's the connection. Of course, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper when? At the Passover. So there's a connection being made right then. What is dispensationalism? Dispensationalism is that idea that God has two peoples. Two people, the Jews and the church. And that, you know, there was a, basically a set of rules that were in place in the Old Testament and they still apply to those folks, but they don't apply to us. So, you know, they have, you know, their status as God's people because of those, those rules. But what, what dispensationalists, now the interesting thing is, is dispensationalists aren't the way they used to be. They're kind of becoming more and more covenantal over time. Very quietly without letting anybody know. Because <laughs> they realize they made a mistake. Yep. Are you saying that there were two peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles? Is that what you're saying? Or is that something else? Because I don't understand. Two ways of salvation. In other words, this, the, the Old Testament is a way of salvation that does not refer to Christ. That was that dispensation. In other words, a set of rules that were applied to these people. Now, they would be, you know, we would call them Jews. But remember, here's a fun thing. Jew means Judah. There were others. Levites, Benjamites, etc. So the Israelites, the descendants of Israel, so they received the law, law of Moses, right? Okay. Now, as far as they knew, you know, this is just something that they have to practice and follow. But there's always been, uh, even within, you know, the Old Testament, a looking forward to what the Messiah, right? So. The question is, is when the Messiah comes, what becomes of the law? And then, you know, one of the ways to sort of, sort of parse it out is there are laws that still apply, like do not murder. Then there are laws that don't, like the Thanksgiving offerings. But those people are just the same as we are. In the Old Testament, yes. Yep, because they were saved by not their works, but by Christ and his work. See, that's the, that's the thing. And this is all relevant, particularly as it comes to, to baptism, that we're about to get to, hopefully, <laughs> because uh, when the baptism is administered, when? Oftentimes, particularly in the case of infant baptism, before the child exercises faith for himself or herself. So in other words, the child didn't have an understanding but it's still a legitimate sacrament because it's not referring to the understanding of the child. It's referring to the work of the Savior. See, this is another place where a lot of people get messed up. The reason I'm baptized is, and I think I should be baptized every time I'm saved. I've been saved 35 times, and every time I get baptized again. There are people who think this way. I'm having a little fun with the accent. Forgive me. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, yeah, Victor. Paul's concept of this substance is the key word here. The substance were the same. 
dispensational might be different, but the substance is the same. And the substance, Bones Christ, Paul says this, all were baptized. Paul says, all the Israelites were baptized into Moses, and in the cloud, and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. This is, by the way, before you start talking about the Lord's Supper. And all drank the same spiritual drink. They were drinking from the spiritual rock. All them that that rock was Christ. There you go. So there's, there's the connection that Paul makes between what happened in the Old and what uh, we see in the Gospels. So that means that um, there's only one people. Only one people of God. Those people are people who have been saved by Christ, redeemed by Christ. Anyway, now there are some significant political implications, and we're witnessing them today. <laughs> There's disagreement. Anyway, um, so I'd like to move on to baptism if you don't mind. So this has got a number of paragraphs, seven, I believe. Um, let me just read maybe the first couple. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace and of his engrafting into Christ of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by God's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Number two, the outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Number three, I think I'll just go ahead and read them all because many of the questions I'm anticipating you'll ask will actually be addressed in the other questions. Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Now, I want to briefly comment on this. What cleanses us from sin, the blood of Christ or water? How was the blood applied in the Old Testament? Sprinkling. This is a subtle allusion to that when we sprinkle. It's not because you were dunked. Dunking's fine. <laughs> We're not against it. In other words, this doesn't say never dunk. But what's being referred to is the blood. The sprinkling refers to the blood. And by the way, there was water sprinkled too. Not by those, and that also was... <laughs> anyway, uh, not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So faith is being exercised in the baptism of infants. It's not as though this is like the faithless option. Five, although it is 
uh, it be a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that uh, all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Okay, so I'm covering some very important ground here, um, getting us back to the lifeboat, you know, the, you know, under these extreme circumstances, is it, and it's impossible to baptize somebody, does that mean that they're not saved? The answer is no. Just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're saved either. And that's true in a Baptist church. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. But just because, you know, Brother Bob has been baptized doesn't mean that Brother Bob is regenerated. We witnessed Brother Bob the other day behaving in a very unregenerate manner. <laughs> you get my point? <laughs> um, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost. I mean, this is such subtle and, and sort of, um, I imagine this particular statement took them days to, to hammer out. By the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to, unto the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So in other words, you're, when you are baptizing your child, you're putting them uh, in a great position, but also in an accountable position. They're accountable. Uh, seven, the sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered unto any person. One faith, one baptism. All right. So that's that. Now let's let's go back to the beginning here, because like I said, the reason I, I I read the whole seven paragraphs is because I know that if we just started with one and didn't have the others read, you might be asking questions about those other ones. So, um, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn mission of the party baptized into the visible church. Now, let's stop there. Not only does it mean this is not important. In other words, pe people might read that and construe it to mean, oh, it's a, yeah, it's a, you know, admission to the visible church, yeah, whatever, but that's not really important. No, that's not what's being said. It's just they're saying it is that, but it's something more as well. So let's think about the visible church and why it's important, because this is something that people have a hard time reconciling themselves to in our anti-institutional society. So we live in a very sort of odd period of time in church history where people are really antagonistic toward any kind of formal institution. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, you, know, you come across it sometimes with the marriage thing, like getting back to the marriage thing. Like, you know, there'll be, you know, I'll talk to some guy and I'll say, you know, you really ought to get married. And I'll say, what is marriage but a piece of paper? <laughs> and I'll say, well, if it's just a piece of paper, then why don't you just make us all happy and get one? It's because you know it's not that you're behaving this way. What does it mean? It means you're accountable to the community for the relationship that you're in. You're accountable to God for the relationship you're in. You've made promises to each other before God and for the community that we're going to hold you accountable for. That's what you don't like. Anyway, so the same thing holds true of the church. I can worship God. I, I keep resorting to my southern accent. 
Let me, let me do my northeastern sophisticated accent. I can worship the divinity in the woods any day. Who needs your institutions? So <laughs> you get my drift, right? So that's uh, kind of the default position of a lot of folks. Everybody's very content. You know, there's a lot of contempt for institutions. And the visible church is an institution. We say, well, there it is, right over there. You can see it right there. You know? Now, I'm not referring just to a building, but you could have like a church picnic. It's a bunch of people or a bunch of people praying. You say, there it is. So there's, there's the visible uh, you know, institution that's being referred to, and it's, it's important. So I want to do some re rehabilitation of a word. Institution. What does institution mean? The term institution. I know it's not explicitly stated here, but often people, you know, associate. That's a very good definition. Yeah. Now, I'd say it's broader than that, but that's certainly part of it. So Molly said it's a place where certain rules and certain behaviors are expected and enforced. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think about it as if I institute this, then it makes itself. Yeah, it's just kind of something that's done to get something established. So like when we say the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is a, you know, a work of theology by John Calvin, right? I remember when I was a young person and came across that title, I said, what in the world? Institutes of the Christian Religion? What's that talking about? Because I didn't think about it in, the, in that way. So we used to talk about it as the things that have been established that make the Christian religion what it is. Other thoughts? So institutions are like the, you could say, the English language is an institution. In other words, it's something that is got formal rules. There are you know, correct ways of speaking and, and other ways of speaking that maybe are understandable but not really ideal. Um, so there, you've got a range of things that we live with that make communication possible with each other. So if, you, if there was no instituted language, if everybody was just on their own, I have my own language. Wileyism. <laughs> you'd look at me and say, what are you talking about? Then I wouldn't understand you because you'd have your own language. We'd all just blah, blah, blah. <laughs> We'd all just babble at each other, which is what the Tower of Babel story is about, by the way. We wouldn't understand each other because we wouldn't have anything common that binds us together. There's another word that everybody kind of like bind, you know, bind, you know, that's a bad thing. No, blessed be the tie that binds, the language binds us together, the constitution binds us together. There are lots of things that are good that bind us together. So we need them. So the visible church, we need it. If we didn't have a visible church and it was just invisible, think about it, where would we be? We'd be here, for example, this morning. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what's happening today? Is that they're destabilizing us to, to, to take away our common, you know, country like with transgenderism and all that, all the things. It's like destabilizing truth. Sure. Yeah, it's very much the way these things tend to work. Uh, but they will expect you to understand the tax law. There were you know, the tax law is not completely subjective. It's like if you say, well, when I read 20%, in my mind, that was two. 
Yeah. When we went through immigration with them to immigrate here, we had to have an actual marriage license. We had to have so much documentation, so many background checks, FBI, fingerprinting. Like, it was intense. Well, and this, it's also the case at many of the institutions where you get these language games going on. They're very picky about certain things and very loose about other things because they have an agenda, but they're not interested in just chaos. They, they want to restructure the world in, a, in, a, in along different lines. Yep, David. So in, 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 when, I say, when I hear institution, it seems to, I'm using the word instigate, which is sort of a form of taking action in an offensive measure to gird up a defensive wall. That's what I'm thinking, I don't know if that's right. So when I think of an institution, it's been built up as a defensive mechanism for what we want, and when people try to tear down an institution, it's more than just tearing down, um, you know, oh, it's just a, it's, it, this is actually a bulwark in society, so when you take it down, that's just the start. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, basically, when you institute something, you're trying to think about the long term. You're trying to think about intergenerational kind of, uh, you know, sort of projects, things that you want to keep continue. Um, you know, there are other things that we don't mind seeing go away, you know. Yep, David. Guardrails on a highway so you can get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, they want to prevent you from getting off the road, and generally people like them. Yeah, thank you. Is the family institution? Sure. Yep. Yeah, so the family is, a, is the first institution. Um, and that's something that uh, scripture you know, st establishes for us, you know. Uh, but also uh, was kind of common, it was sort of the common understanding for you know, everybody around the world forever. Um, Reverend Wiley, would people that have grown up here with freedom, are we experiencing a change over to socialist behavior? Well, a lot of folks think so, um, but it's not entirely new. I mean, if you were to go back into the 1930s, the Communist Party was able to fill football stadiums. I don't know if people uh, have an appreciation for that. So this is not like our first rodeo with this whole thing. So I can take, I can show you photographs. The American Communist Party packing out like a football stadium. My my dad told me what happened during the 30s, and he said, "Mom, it was terrible. The communists are going to take over this country, and then we went to war." Well, there there were a, a lot of concerned people, and um, you know. I don't know if you remember the 50s, obviously, with um, you know, concerns about communist infiltration in the government. Here's the thing, you know, I don't know if you remember all of the kind of the, you know, this, the, the, the kind of the, the brouhaha or the, uh, the, the controversy, uh, but uh, McCarthy, uh, Senator McCarthy, actually was right. We have lots of documentation to demonstrate that the communists were all over the place. And Whitaker Chambers, I don't know if you remember Witness, he was a communist. And it, what happened was he turned all his old buddies in. It turns out that there was lots, everything that, that, that they suspected was happening. Now the problem is, is that a lot of people at the New York Times were 
part of the Communist Party, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and they didn't like this whole process and stuff like that. A lot of people in Hollywood were actually communists. Um, well, but I, I guess my point is, is that this isn't new, and uh, it's, it kind of has waxed and waned. Um, now, here's an interesting high noon that, uh, that Western that was produced, I think, in 1952 or 54. Gary Cooper, Gary, Gary Cooper was in it. But uh, the director, the writer, was a guy that had been part of the Communist Party. And um, so Rio Bravo was John Wayne's answer to High Noon. I don't know if people realize, but it was very explicitly a response to that. So there was, you know, in the 1950s, and I think Rio Bravo came out in like 57, there was like this internal debate within Hollywood between uh, communist sympathizers and people like John Wayne. And we all kind of look at it today and say, I didn't know that was going on. I just thought the movie was cool. <laughs> you know, but there was a lot of uh, ideological conflict. I, you can go through a, a list of some of your favorite uh, screen actors and 50% chance they were commies. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, they were commies. Uh, they own admission. Anyway, <laughs> yes. Patton at the end of the war said you defeated the wrong enemy. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's why he suddenly died. <laughs> There's been a lot of speculation about that too. Anyway, we're got, we're going far, far afield. Let's go back to to the uh, subject of baptism. The main thing is that there's a visible church, and it ain't chicken feed. It's important, and uh, the membership in that church, the visible church, uh, is instituted with a visible sign. Now, this implies that there is the church that is only known to God, which we can't see, right? But God knows. And when we think about the church, I mean, we should think about it as, you know, we try to study its purity and peace. Purity means we're trying to make certain that the doctrine is pure, the administration of the sacraments is pure, that the Believers in the fellowship are pure, that the church is pure in the sense that there aren't false teachers. But we can't, can't, we don't have like a device that helps us to examine everybody's heart perfectly. We, we have to be content with behavior and, and words. Maybe we can read attitudes a little bit, you know, but sometimes we can get those wrong. Now, if we say you're never supposed to be angry, then we look at all kinds of places in the Bible where prophets were angry and say, well, I guess. It's okay to be angry sometimes, you know. So it's tough. It's tough to try to keep it all sorted out. But it's that just because it's tough doesn't mean we don't try. Do the best we can, right? Pray, teach, you know, sort of hold each other accountable as best we can without being, you know, uh, the sort of people who go around accusing each other of stuff all the time, you know, and getting that. So the visible church is important, and the visible church, you know, is a visible sign to the world as well. When we gather to worship, what we do? What are we doing? We're saying to the world, there is a God, and He should be worshipped. Even church buildings. I know sometimes people are like, well, it's just a building or whatever, but it's the only witness left in places like Cambridge, Massachusetts. That that spire that points up, everybody knows what it means. Even the unbelievers know what it means. 
It means look up. <laughs> there's a heaven above and there's a God on the throne. That's what it's intended to say. Look up. Now, you know, what goes at the very top? Some churches crosses, some of them weather vanes. <laughs> if you go back to New England, you know what I mean. Anyway, uh, so the visible church is a visible, you know, it just its existence is intended to say something. There is a God and we're, we're accountable to, to him and he saves us. We should, we should look up not just because uh, we're accountable, but because he's the one who can deliver us from sin, but also the troubles that we face in life, right? The hardships, the heartaches, you know, he's there for us. This is proclaimed even, you know, just in the architecture. Yeah, even like the Old Testament, Old Testament church believers, they were definitely different than the rest of the nations. God told them to be completely different. They looked. They were kind of spotty in their uh, performance, though, wouldn't you say? <laughs> so we, we have buildings and we do baptism, but we're not really all that different from them. Well, and they weren't always all that different from their neighbors. You remember, there's some really unsavory passages in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, or 2 Chronicles, 1 2 Samuel, Judges, um, you know, Joshua, <laughs> you know, Isaiah. <laughs> I just go on and on and on. I mean, really unsavory. I, I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like there's, there are passages in the Old Testament talking about the, the faithlessness of Israel that are so supercharged, I, it's almost like you can't mention them in mixed company. They were that bad at times. But the very fact that they existed was still something that is worth noting. The New Testament church has done its own thing throughout history. Like, we've disappeared, and then we reappeared, disappeared, reappeared, depending on which part of the country and which part of the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are, you know, you think about, say, Turkey, which was the center for the first 500, it's like 800 years of Christianity. It was like the heartland. It was like the Bible Belt. We don't think about it that way anymore. Anyway, so the visible church is important and admission to it is important. Um, but then this also serves to the person who's receiving the baptism. It serves that person as a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. So, in other words, notice here it didn't say of his own faith. This is not a sign and seal of the person's own faith. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, his engrafting into Christ. The visible church is uh, something that we shouldn't take uh, lightly. There is a, a real sense that God takes his visible church, physical church, seriously and it's, it's connected to him. Um, then uh, regeneration, you know, this baptism is speaking to regeneration, it's speaking to remission of sins, it's speaking to uh, giving up uh, unto God through Jesus Christ newness of life, in other words, dying and, and living. Um, and then it's supposed to be continued uh, till the end of the world. In other words, it's something that we should be continuing to do baptize. Um, any thoughts on any of that? Yep, Christopher. 
in conversations I've had with Baptists, there's sometimes, I think, an implicit assumption that baptism is more of a spiritual sign than circumcision. Yeah. Was. Circumcision was not pointing to a spiritual reality, it was pointing to the fact that the Messiah would come through this bloodline, and so we needed to have this generational succession right. sort of thing, maybe connected to a land promise. So very much this earth kind of focus, whereas baptism was focused on salvation, etc. Um, what's really interesting here is the, one of the um, passages that they cite is Romans 4.11, which talks about circumcision to Abraham um, and what it meant. I've always referred to that because it really contradicts that life thinking yeah and, and it uses the language of seal and sign you know in that passage if i remember right it's a sign and a seal so that's where the the language of sign and seal comes from now uh, sometimes what you see happen with this approach that the baptist that you're referring to uh, they're actually drawing on a language that uh, comes to us from augustine of an outward sign of an inward grace and uh, what they are doing they're begging the question. Begging the question means that they've answered a question uh, and have not admitted that they've done that. So whenever somebody begs the question, in other words, there's a question that's been answered in the very way the approach is taken. They've interpreted what inward sign means. So they're referring to their belief. They think it's a outward sign of an inward grace. That's what I mean, inward grace. They, they've interpreted inward grace as their faith. That's not what Augustine <laughs> was talking about. What, what Augustine was talking about is this inward grace in the sense that there is a grace that is in the sacrament that is not entirely evident on the surface. It's an inward grace, outward sign of an inward grace. So. Uh, now, now, that could lend it to itself to being interpreted in a different way that's also a problem. That's a sacerdotal, just because you've been baptized, you're regenerated, right? And that's uh, the other side of the, you know, the road that you could fall off. And they address that with the, you know, just because you've been doesn't mean that you have been regenerated. That's, you know, addressed in this section as well. But it doesn't mean that this is all about you. And that's the problem. There are people who interpret baptism as really, it's all about me. It's a different kind of testimony service. You know, I was walking, you know, deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. You know, and, you know, and they, they, you get this testimony and it's all about you, your story. Now your story is important, don't get me wrong, I'm not against people telling their stories. But um, who's being glorified in your story may be you. It's one of the problems with uh, testimony services. You ever been in a testimony service where everybody's trying to one each other up on how bad they used to be? Yeah, it's like, oh, you don't, you, you thought, you know, it's like, like people talking about how bad I had it when they were a kid. When I was a kid, we walked to school five miles, you know, through the snow. And then the next guy said, well, we were barefoot. We walked through the snow five miles. No, 10 miles, barefoot. Next guy, we walked 15 miles through the snow, barefoot and backward. <laughs> you know, it gets more and more absurd, and they're like, okay, okay, the times were hard. 
<laughs> but what sometimes in these environments where you have these testimony services, it's like, are you trying to imply that you enjoy God's grace in a richer way because you were worse? Maybe we should sin more so grace will abound? <laughs> so anyway, uh, the, the point is Christ is the Savior. Christ is the Savior, and the, and the baptism points to Christ. Yeah, and one of the important things with baptizing infants, just as you're bringing us up talking about it, is somebody comes into a, they're born into a family. They're made a citizen of a nation, and both of them lay claim. Yeah. And without having the other, and the church, without actually having paedal baptism, the visible church does not claim the child. Right. Yeah, it's very important to have that claim. Uh, and, and also, this all, you know, the, and you're getting at something I'd like to explore more next week, the relationship of the, of the household to the household of God. So in, in the ancient world, um, people weren't understood to be individuals in the way we do today. Not everybody understood individuals, you know, you know. There's Diane, you know, and there's Dylan, you know. You know, they understood individuals, but they, they also placed a greater stress on who the, everybody is part of. You know, he's up, you know, he's of Israel, he's from Amman, you know, he's of Midian, you know, that kind of thing. And so there was always a connection uh, in the uh, you know, in, in the ancient world, the classical world, between your household and your people. We as Christians we have Christian households. Christian households with headship, father, you know, if the father is not acting in this way, then the mother, right? So you've got that. And then the relationship of the household to the church is a parallel relationship that we saw in antiquity between the household and the polis, the city. So the church is the household of God, but it's also uh, the city of God. You know, it's like a, a local outpost of the of the city of God. Yep. Um, you know the, the parable of the foolish virgins? Are the ones that are foolish, were they like baptized, but never were sanctified? Like, I'm just, like, how, how does that work? Yeah, it's a, that's a good story, and it's time to end the... <laughs> it's good to think about. Uh, they, they, had, they had their their lamps, but they didn't have any oil, right? They were there with the others, but they weren't there with the others, if you get my drift, right? So there's going to be a sorting out. There's going to be a sorting out. You know, and the Lord says there are going to be some surprising revelations. Some have said, you know, Lord, Lord, I never knew you. That's what I'll say to them. So it's going to, sort of, it's going to be a sorting out. And uh, anyway, so... But getting back to, to baptism, there's a lot more to talk about. We will continue the conversation next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for helping us with this uh, uh, thorny matter, but important one. Uh, we want to think uh, about this in a consistent and biblical way. And uh, we're grateful for what we have uh, in the confession. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to uh, think with the Westminster Divines uh, uh, about these matters and pray with them in a real way because I know that they were very prayerful as they uh, gave themselves to this work. And I say these things in Christ's name. Amen.